Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWeta podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the AfriWeta world. We invite you to check out previous AfriWeta episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to the south of our continent to meet the great Dongo Kingdom. A shout out to my Angolans out there. Afiwetu has landed on your shores. I apologize in advance for the mispronunciation of words that will most definitely happen. Before we begin, Please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all platforms where we post interesting facts, stories, updates and links for further study for all you lovely people. And also please remember to tell your family and friends about us, okay? And for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So, before we go any further, it's that time. Yep, take out your maps, Afriwatu, and let's see where we are on the continent today. So, this kingdom existed in what is modern-day Angola, north of the Kwanza River. It sat between the Kwanza and the Lukala River up in the highlands of modern-day Luanda. Its borders stretched from the Atlantic Ocean all the way across to the river during its peak in the 16th century. So how did it all begin? The historical and ancient kingdom of Dongo reached its zenith in the 16th century, as I've just said. Its story starts way back in the 15th century AD with that of the Congo kingdom. Afriwetu covered the Congo kingdom in season one, episode nine. Please go check it out. It was one of the tributary states. Now, let us take a quick segue to give context to the region's inhabitants and their own ancestors, going further back to the 11th century AD, where there was one of the great migrations of people who came from up north, from Western Africa, so the Nigeria, Cameroon, modern-day Nigeria, Cameroon area, who migrated down to this and other southern regions. These folk were skilled in the advanced technology of metallurgy, ceramic, and agricultural knowledge. They settled in mixing with the local community of co-speakers, as well as folk who had been there since the 6th century AD, from the year AD 500. And then creating their own communities such as the Bakongo, Lunda, and our very own Bundu of the Dongo. Which then brings us nicely to the 1500s, to the formation of what we now know as the Dongo Kingdom. It was the home of the Mbundu people and was one of the more powerful of the tributary states of the Congo, led by the Angola, the ruling monarch. Did everybody get that? Angola, Angola? Anyway. The Dongo broke away from Congo in circa AD 1556, having had a steady growth and wealth and thus able to claim independence from the Congo. 
It was a force to be reckoned with by AD 1520 and one of the largest states in the region. So what also helped lend to the growth was a well-structured governance system amongst other things. So let's just have a look at what was happening up in these ruling circles, okay? It was a centralized state system, and at the head of the kingdom was the Ngola, who was chosen from the royal lineage. The Ndongo had an electoral system in place, and Angola was selected following this process. They would have to come from the royal line and have to have been nominated by what were called the Sobas, who controlled the sub-regions of the provinces of the kingdom. It was therefore not a strict hereditary system. On the death of Angola, you would find the competing families involved in political maneuvering in the corridors of power to get their candidate to the high seat. Once chosen, the Angola did not have absolute power and they had to follow a system of consultation with the council, one that included the Kota, who were both titled and elders, and the untitled Lemba. Other members included the administrators, the Tendala, who were the administrators and also for judicial matters, and the Ngolambole, who dealt with military matters. The Ngola's powers were dependent on the relationship between the nobles' houses and with the more powerful ones rising in the leadership. One of the ways in which the powers were strengthened was through marriage alliances. The Mbundu were a matriarchal society and the noble houses placed a great deal of importance on the woman's lineage. The link to the mother's side was really quite a thing and was core to the society. And in fact, one could be considered a slave if they could not establish this lineage, if it was lost. And no, I don't mean left on a car seat. It could be lost through being kidnapped or having been sold into servitude by your relatives or otherwise. Thus, marriage alliances at this level would form a bond to or between powerful noble houses and groups. These alliances would then create what was the single chiefdom unit, and it was a practice that was done across the chiefdoms in the Bundu and across all of society. Intermarriage between clans was greatly promoted, as this was an accumulation of members to a clan, which was a representation of its status. You know, the bigger the clan, the bigger your status. Fun fact. In terms of the woman's role in nobility and how it played out in the intermarriage context, if the chiefdoms were linked by intermarriage, then the woman was not considered the wife of an individual ruler or chief, but a wife of the throne. In practice, what this meant was that even if her husband died, she would retain the title and status that she had. It also meant that whomever ascended to rule would then be her new husband. I mean, let me not lie. This bit already sounded like one heck of a drama series. And when I was doing the research, all I could really imagine was the tension and the intrigues and the scheming and all the real life court shenanigans. It must have been quite something. So before we leave this section, though, just a quick note. Please let us not think that these queens were just pawns. I mean, one of the most famous women rulers is Nzinga Jonga Mbandi. And she has her own Legends episode coming up this season. So please, please, please keep a lookout. Anyway, Nzinga was a classic example of how to use a system to your very best advantage and kill it. She was a relative of the then Ngola, 
but strictly speaking, was not an heir to the throne, as although she was his sister, they did not have the same birth mother. In fact, Nzinga's mother was one of the non-lineage lower nobles and a co-wife of the old king. So she was not a legitimate successor to Mbande Angola. So Nzinga was already at a disadvantage and people, and yet she fought through for the love of her people and she held her own against the invading European foreigners. But let's leave her for now. Come back for her episode for more deets. Also, let us say goodbye to the nobility and take a look at the rest of the Dongo's Kingdom society setup. Cool? Actually, before we even go to the society setup, I just wanted to make a quick sharp left and have a brief segue into the Mbundu economy. We have already heard about their iron smelting history through their ancestors from up north, right? From which they created iron goods for trade and local use, especially in the thriving agricultural side with their quite advanced tools. They were also engaged in long-distance trade. The most well-known was their involvement in that of the tragic and deeply moral trade of indentured people with the European foreigners. And this is hardly surprising given that they were originally a tributary state of the Congo Kingdom. The other trade practices included the very lucrative salt trade, exported goods such as the regional favorites of palm oil and rubber, and other naturally sourced goods like copal, wax, and of course, ivory. In fact, when you think about this list and we look at it, it what stood out, at least to me, was they were really in the high-end goods market, right? Anyway, so let's go back to society. The Dongo Kingdom's inhabitants, as we said, were the Mbundu, who are not to be confused with the Ovimbundu. They are a distinctly different group, but there is some relational and linguistic link between the two. Afriwetu will cover the Ovimbundu in the future. So our Mbundu operated in social groups called Muiji, and they were led by the eldest matrilineal uncle, Velemba. This role was hereditary within the matrilineal line, and on his death, he would more often than not be succeeded by his sister's sons. He was not only the political leader for the clan, but he also played the dual role of a healer. Interestingly, in my research, I found out that this term, Lemba, was also on occasion given to female relatives, the older female relatives, who took the bride to see her groom. And speaking of weddings, see what I did there? When it came to the rituals and customs around marriage, we find, like that of many, actually majority of known African practices, the payment of dowry, or a bride price, which is paid to the woman's family. Usually to the parents who are actual or acting. This bride price would then be shared amongst the family, an act that solidified the bonds of the extended family. And if the couple parted ways, then this bride price was returned to the husband's family. People in servitude was not a foreign thing in the society. And as in every society, there were customs and social rules around the different classes. When it came to this particular class, remember earlier we said that how one could be sold and lose a heritage, but equally in the reverse, it could also be gained. How you ask? Let me tell you. There were instances where a person could be sent to serve in a family. However, 
if that person's children were born whilst they were still in service, they could be given the opportunity to be a free person and if allowed to even adopt the matrilineal lineage of that household. They plus any others who are born into that household will therefore have a higher social status than those who are bought. They could then maintain this through their life and would only lose this status if they were sold because the household was forced to for some dire reason. So as we're still in this conversation about social control in society, um, there was a very, I, I did think that there was a very interesting thing to be said about their court proceedings. So like, again, many African cultures, there was a concept of joint social responsibility and their court system was based on customary law. The people would be bound or tarnished by any disreputable actions like theft of property and goods, which was actually not taken lightly by the court. In fact, when it came to theft and adultery, these were liable to fetch such heavy fines when found guilty. So serious was the nature of the crime to the Mbundu. And then to break it down even further, when it came to thefts in particular, this could be the theft of something with very little value, which was, it was still deemed so abhorrent, the crime, that the heavy fine could take the form of slaves. And here is where you would see relatives being given as slaves, which then resulted in them losing their lineage. So I hope that's all making sense now. Then interestingly, adultery was not limited to just someone's wife, but could also extend to the female servants in a household. Then you also had the administrative system that dealt with issues surrounding taxation, debts, commercial loans, and such like. At this point, the court systems would also kick in for these plus accusations of witchcraft. One of the many ways that cases were decided included what was called the poison oracle, where the opposing sides would have to go through the Indua, for which the penalty was dire. So it was enslavement of the family of either the defendant or the accuser if they lost. And the ordeal basically was taking the poison. So really it was a deal to the death. Now as we go into the next section about the military, I will start with a very early caveat. The military tactics of the Dongo are a whole study onto themselves and Afriwetu cannot do it justice in the time we have. So we should just touch on some highlights, but please, 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 please go and read up on it. So the Dongo had a professional standing army. Those were skilled military men with training and lived in barracks called the Kimbara. They were selected for their special skills, which were then perfected during their intense training regimes. This included honing their physical strength in hand-to-hand -hand combat, the use of weaponry like spears, both the long and the stabbing spears, archery, axes and swords, just for starters, and then just add all the other military techniques and disciplines. But there is this one particular skill that was truly quite distinctive. It's another level of athletic prowess that just had to be shared with you, called the Sangwa. So, let me explain this thing. A warrior 
underwent such intense training that out of it came the ability to leap like high, 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 high. And then whilst up there in the air, would be able to still dodge arrows, spears and other kinds of rockets and physical attacks with some almost inhuman agility. How? Well, that is the best bit. Whilst they're still up there, please picture it, they avoid these attacks by twisting their body in numerous times whilst in this air and even then still being able to fight handling a weapon with deftness like a sign of true remarkable skill how dope is that now very quickly, before you start to think of this being a natural African thing, let's also keep in mind that to be the best in something is not just a matter of being built that way, the way many like to portray African physicality as a thing to hang on to, but actually remember that all militaries across the continent and the globe undergo extensive physical, technical and mental training to be the best. This is no different. But why lie? This one is quite special because in the African context, when we excel, it is truly a sight to behold. Anyway, back to our Dongo military. Soldiers were sourced from the general population, from all the different social classes, including the servants. Once they made the cut, they would then undergo vigorous training. The size of the armies over the years ranged from thousands to tens of thousands, but not all of them would be full-time soldiers. Those who were full-time were pulled from the specialized few, and then the rest would be drawn in depending on the battles at hand. And as with every large professional army, there was a supporting cast who would travel with them. This included the porters, the spouses, and all the other types of help. When it came to other techniques and tactics, in the research, I found a commentary on the perceived disorganization or indisciplined way the Dongo armies fought in battle, which is obviously an untruth and why we have to take the reins and tell our own stories, right? So let me address that. The Dongo army formation was one that they would fan out in such a way that was semi-dispersed that they could ensure that as individuals and as a unit, they still had each other's backs. The different regiments would then be placed strategically across the battlefields. And this style of battle formation proved to, at least in the beginning, be the best when it came to rendering the use of guns less than effective. Remembering that guns at that time were more of a hindrance because of the inaccuracy of the shots as well as the slow loading of the rifles. In fact, it was said that after the African soldiers got over the initial shock of the loud bangs, they would then run up to the enemy during battle, rip the guns out of the foreigners' hands, and kill them. Now, each regiment was led by a kilamba. And then there were smaller units within the regiments called the mozengos, which had a central unit and two wings. And then within each, within each of these was the pombo and scouts, which is the cavalry. Like all other armies, the regiments had their own banners and colors, and within each, they had their own special and complicated methods of communication during battle. Each one was led by a commander who was able to send through commands to their soldiers during battle in the field in what I would only say is an ingenious way, using drums, horns, and other instruments. Depending on who was giving the order and the level of importance, which is understood by the troops who could decipher the orders and act accordingly. So what this means is 
and pay attention. If Commander X gave an order to Unit X, but then mid-action, General Y sends an order through specifically, possibly louder instruments that was for all units to follow, then it was understood that it would supersede Commander X's orders and Unit X would then listen to General Y's instructions. Bit together? All of this communication was reliant on these instruments in the field. So you can also imagine the level of training to understand all of that mid-battle where the noise and the rush of adrenaline is pulsating in your ears. I mean, I can't even. But before we leave the military and start on the last section of our dongle and the end of the kingdom, I want us to have another quick segue to the kingdom of Matamba. Why, you ask? Because it has a part in the final stages of the Dongo Kingdom. And so let's look at it in that context. So Matamba was founded around the 16th century, around AD 1550, and was a tributary state, albeit from afar of the Congo Kingdom. It was located northeast of Luanda on the river, and there's a dope fact about Matamba that I wanted to share. It had a history of having women rulers. In fact, it was seen as quite the norm. Anyway, it was here that Ngola Nzinga retreated to when she was ousted from Dongo in AD 1630. She took over this kingdom and used it as her base of operations in her continuing fight against the European invaders and the Dongo collaborator Ngola Ahari. This expulsion from her kingdom, although not immediate, was one of the flashpoints that led to the fall of the Dongo kingdom. And this nicely brings us to the demise of this kingdom. Why, oh why, I hear you ask, after such a rich and dope history, right? Now, the end of the kingdom was mixed in with a lot of European foreign intervention, and there has been a great deal written about it, so you only have to go and look. Today, we only have time for a really, really, really quick summary as we are genuinely almost out of time. For our Afriwatu, worth pointing out just a few core issues. One of the flashpoints that saw the weakening of the kingdom was the trade of indentured people across the Atlantic, something that they were said to not be keen on, but in the end, following raids upon raids and pressure, ended up being a party too. There was also a point of contention as the Dongo went constant battle over the territories from where her people were being captured and sold off like chattel. Then you had the initial defeat of Ngola Nzinga, she had taken over from her brother Ngolambandi in AD 1624 after he died. She and her followers fled to Matamba after being ousted from Dongo in AD 1630, following a major battle with her rival to the throne, Ngola Amari, who was backed by the Portuguese, and with whom they had been fighting from circa AD 1575. From Matamba, Zinga did not capitulate or stop fighting for her people. She continued and personally led her troops into battle until AD 1655, when she negotiated a truce after about 25 years of war. In AD 1663, she died, and within a decade, in AD 1671, the Dongo Kingdom lost the key fortress of Pungu Angongo, and this was the start of the end of this great kingdom.
So what else was happening during the lifetime of the Dongo Kingdom? So in 1420, construction of the Chinese Forbidden City in Beijing. In 1438, the Inca Empire is founded. In 1504, the foundation of the Sultanate of Sanaa in modern Sudan. In 1517, the sweating sickness epidemic in Tudor's England. In 1527, the sack of Rome ending the Italian Renaissance. In 1613, the time of troubles in Russia ends with the establishment of the House of Romanov, which rules until 1917. And in 1658, after his father Shah Jahan completes the Taj Mahal, his son deposes him as ruler of the Mughal Empire. So as we bring it home, Afriwatu, on doing the research for this kingdom, there were a few things that really stuck out. So for starters, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of work around the slave trade, and the fact that a lot has been written about it from the foreign perspective back in the day. And to be honest, it is for this reason that Afriwatu exists, so that we can take control and tell our own history without a foreign lens dictating how we see our world and our continent. Another. But is a dope thing is about how intertwined this kingdom is with many others on our continent. Afriwetu already covered the Congo, Luba, Lunda kingdoms and empires in season one, so please go check them out. Those are episodes nine, eleven, and thirteen. We shall also cover Ovimbundu. As I have said, we shall also most definitely cover our Angolan Zinga, who was the last. Bastion of hope for the African kingdom against the foreign invaders, and she truly put up a good fight. We shall hear more about her during her legend episode that will be out this season. So I'm very excited about that. From the history of this region that stretched back to circa 1000 BC, from the ancient Kwe people to today's modern Angola, this was really just the tip of the iceberg. Our continent's history is not bland, simple, homogenous. It is full of drama, complex societies, themes, peoples, cultures, stories. Not one size fits all. We have to embrace it all, good and bad. For in it, we meet our ancestors and get rooted in our story, own our own narrative, and understand our very essential role in the world. And with those few words, until next time, mubarakiwe. Sashi, 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 salam bina. Sashi, 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 salam bina. Sashi, mukaja mawa, salam bina. Sashi, gamut.